Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 601, a best of episode with uh, Randy Olea. This was originally aired in 2013, and we talk about war and fighting and getting sober and what's a real man and et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's a really good episode. I hope you guys like it. Uh, we will be back with new episodes in August. I am still on break and uh, enjoying it. Uh, we are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp Online Counseling. Um, keeping our mind healthy is a really, really, really important thing, and uh, that's why I started this podcast, and I'm a big fan of BetterHelp. I've been using it for years, and, uh, you know, I learned all kinds of tools. Uh, you know, one of the things that I did this week was I've unplugged my video games uh, indefinitely because I can just feel it affecting uh, my mind. And if I didn't talk about this in my support groups or especially with my therapists, uh, you know, I wouldn't, uh, I probably wouldn't be making that decision. But anyway, big fan of BetterHelp. It's online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And you guys, the listeners, get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp. Dot com slash mental. That's better H E L P dot com slash mental. And make sure you include the slash mental so they know you came from the podcast. And here now that uh, episode with Randy Olea. Welcome to episode one twenty five with my guest Randy Olea. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. An hour or two of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Please go check it out. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff you can do there. You can join the forum. You you can take one of the many surveys that uh, thousands of people have uh, have filled out and are an important part of this uh, this show. Um, that blows my mind sometimes when I think about that. That like like twenty thousand people have taken, eh, maybe not that many, maybe like fifteen thousand people have taken the surveys on the website. It's just uh, it's so cool getting to know. Um, and when people take them anonymously, there's just something about what they share that, um, I don't know, it's, um, I'm learning so much, I guess that's <laughs> what I'm trying to say with all these awkward silences. Uh, to give you a med update, I've been on uh, 200 milligrams of uh, Lamictal. It's been added to my cocktail of other meds, and uh, I'm actually feeling pretty good. Um, despite that last 30 seconds, I'm feeling like uh, I'm having an easier time forming sentences and uh, putting my thoughts together. There was there was a period about six months ago where it was, um, I can't remember the episode, but it was just so hard to put sentences together, and... Um, it's nice to feel like that uh, is maybe behind me, at least for, at least for now. It's the thing about being on meds, man. Uh, you never know how long the good is going to last, so you just kind of try to uh, try to enjoy it. So I'm in a I'm in a good place, and thank you guys uh, for for all of your support. Although I got to tell you, there was a little bit of hypomania. I think that's what it's called in the first two weeks at that at that 200 milligram dose, and then like a switch flipping off it. Uh, 
it switched off, but uh, I was, uh, yeah, it was a little scary there for a while because I was like uh, surfing the internet and looking at porn and like doing it really compulsively. And um, and then, like I said, just like a switch, it, it, it flipped off. So it's nice to be back among the living. Uh, I want to kick things off with a an email that I got from a listener uh, who calls himself Johnny. And he writes, uh, Hey there, Paul. I just discovered the podcast via a review of Maria Bamford's new CD on the uh, Onion AV Club. I'm not really pro or con on podcasts. It's just not something I've ever been into much. With every other social media platform out there, I've already got some serious information overload going, you know. But I'm, bi- but I'm bipolar too, electric boogaloo, and I love Maria Bamford, so I figured, what the hell? That was Saturday, this is Wednesday. I've already listened to six episodes. I'm on meds, and my current cocktail has been working for several years now, for which I am grateful. I've been in talk therapy with my amazing shrink for about a decade. My friends and family know I'm bipolar, and I even try to talk about it a little on Facebook, just just uh, so just to, I don't know, let people know that I'm dealing with it and to try and dispel some of the stigma and prove that I'm not ashamed of it. But your podcast, Jesus Christ, I'm hearing people talk about things I've never heard anyone say out loud before. Damn it, I'm tearing up. I've avoided contact with other bipolar folk because I didn't want to have to deal with anyone else's problems. I am a profoundly self-centered person, and when I'm trying to deal with my own mental illness, I can't give someone else the attention they deserve if they start to talk about their own experiences. And in that way, I think I've unintentionally isolated myself from any kind of help I could get from a larger community. So hearing other people, people whose work I know and respect, I started with the names I recognized, talk about the same things I've experienced has been, well, it's been a lot of things, but mostly I think it's relief, relief that I'm not alone. And thank you for repeating that every episode. It's one thing to read or hear about other people's struggles through a third party, but it's quite another to actually listen to someone talk about it in depth and in a way that's not really irritating or choking on its own sense of self-importance. You know, honestly, there are a million things I want to say to you, but there was one episode where you talked about seeking compassion, and I realized that that's something I've been doing my entire life, and I've made some really shitty choices because of it. That's just one example, and I could go on, and I kind of want to tell you my whole life story, but it's late, and I'm still processing a lot of what I've heard, and maybe you don't want to know about the gay BDSM scene in Chicago. It plays a major role. Lastly, I'm going to attempt my first support group this weekend. A former therapist recommended it years and years ago, but he called it group therapy, which just sounded sad. But you've talked about how much support groups have helped you, so I decided to look... uh look one up where I live and see what I could find. There is one that is literally across the street from my apartment. I don't think it's any kind of a sign, just a remarkable and excuse-annihilating coincidence. So I'm going this Saturday. Why not, right? Keep up the great work, Johnny. Thank you so much for that, Johnny. That uh, that really touched me. And uh, I, I'd suggest to anybody who's seeking a support group, um, even if the first couple of, of ones you go to don't, I don't know, stir anything in you or don't make you want to come back, you know, try try a half a dozen different ones before because there, you know, be honest, there's some shitty, there's some shitty support groups out there, you know, or you know the 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 support group network may be great, but that particular support group in that you know location might not be the best one, so don't don't give up on them, and. uh 
I want to uh, just read this happy moment uh, from a listener named Sally. She writes, I remember actually taking the time to lay in the thick carpet-like grass under a tree when I was around eight or nine. It was summertime and I was visiting my grandparents' farm. I was free to relax and be a child at the farm. I remember feeling the warmth of the ground radiating up into my body, the contrast of the cool shade over my face and torso, and the sun's rays still on my legs, the sound of the giant tree's leaves slowly being blown to and fro by a cool summer breeze. I remember thinking, this is heaven. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. (laughs) That is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% of home. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with Randy Olay, who uh, has been a friend of mine for probably eight years. Um, yeah. We we met through a support group, and, and you were one of the first guys that I met in a support group where I remember thinking, that guy seems like a man to me. That guy has the confidence that I want to have. And the compassion that I want to have. I was dead wrong, but the point is... <laughs> thank you. Um, you are somebody um, that I, I'm so happy to be, to be friends with. Well, thanks. And, thanks, Paul. And I've wanted to get you on the podcast for, for a while um, because I think, um, I think my listeners would like to hear your story and get to, and get to know you um, so where would be a good place to... Uh, you're how old? I am 62. I'll be 63 in September. But you're a young 60, 62. You still play basketball. Playing play full-court ball Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. Uh, go to, go to uh, LA Fitness two or three times a week. It's trying to stave off father time. <laughs> you're married. You have a six-year-old daughter. And a, uh, a 20-year-old stepson. And a 20-year-old stepson. Right. Um, you're a Vietnam vet. Right. You've been sober for 25 years? Yes, 25 plus. Right. Yeah. Um, and you grew up in Los Angeles? I grew, I was born in East LA, just like mm-hmm. the song. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> raised in, uh, Pico Rivera until I was, you know, 12 or 13. Uh, and then we moved to, um, Temple City. I don't know if you know those areas. Mm-mm. Okay. Uh, very, a lot of gang activity back then. Of course, with gangs back then, it was brass knuckles and, uh, switchblades. And switchblades. That's right. And, uh, today, uh, it's, uh, being in a gang today is not quite, the, it doesn't have the same. Yeah. I mean, we used to meet at the park yeah. when you wanted to, when you wanted to have it out. Yeah. You know, that's back in those days. And you're a Mexican American? Mexican American. Uh, second generation? Second generation. Yeah. Uh, my, my uh, dad uh, was uh, born in Texas. My mother was born in L.A. And uh, 
funnily enough, you know, speaking of my dad, I just, uh, uh, last week, you know, he dropped out of our lives years and years ago, uh, and came back in when my mother passed away back in 85. And, uh, I think guilt brought him back into the picture and, and then he disappeared after about a year of trying to hang out with us. And, uh, so he's never, he's never met, he had never met any of his grandchildren. And, uh, and I was watching, uh, a an episode of uh, that uh, real sports with Bryant Gumbel, and they 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 were profiling this young white kid who had who uh, has brought all these old Negro League players uh, back together again because he's been researching him and putting him back together. So I thought, you know, because my dad was not, a, not to play, just to. Just no, no, no. To, they're they're, yeah. they're very old. <laughs> yeah. Many of them are dead, because uh, that was back in the thirties, twenties, thirties, and forties. So these guys are in their nineties, right? And eighties. You know, this was when Jack, before Jackie Robinson, you know, made broke the color barrier in forty seven. In any case, I thought, you know, I'm going to look up the East LA baseball teams, find out, maybe even find out where my where my old man is, because you know we really haven't heard from him uh, for about twenty plus years, and. Um, Found out that he passed away. Uh, I, I went on this. Uh, there's a site where you, you can put in your last name, and it'll give you all the Oleas, for example, in my case, all the Oleas who have died in California. And found his birth date, and he was living in Fontana, apparently, and um, and he died in night in 2009. So he's been dead for four years. And what did you think or or feel when you read that? Well, you know, I the one of the one of the first things that came to my mind, Paul, was that I do not want to die like that. You know, I want my loved ones around me. You know, th- this is the you know probably one of the greatest revelations I think a man like me who's had the kind of life that I've had, who, you know, I mean, he was a role model. He was not a positive role model, but he was a role model. You know what I'm saying? He, he was, he was, he, he was, well, he was, he was mean. He was a mean son of a gun. Um, and he, we can swear on here, by the way. Well, you know, um, he was mean and he, uh, he pushed us away, kept us, always kept us at arm. The only emotion that he really, felt comfortable uh, showing was anger. Um, we how, never... I'm sorry? How would he express that? Physically, usually. Like you know, Broke my sister's nose a couple of... Th- broke, you know, a couple of bones. I mean, you know, he would never last in today's environment in terms of child abuse. You know, he, he was a classic child abuser. And... Um, uh, but, you know, look, he provided for us we had three hots in a cot, so I I can't, you know, uh, uh, blame him for not raising us because he did do that. But one of the key ingredients that is missing, you know, from our from our lives, my sisters and uh, myself, are is is that kind. What was missing was that emotional upbringing. You know what I'm saying? Uh, where uh, love is expressed. Now you met you just met my daughter again. Uh, you got to see her after so many years. You know, she's going to be seven years old, and there isn't a day go by that I don't kiss her and tell her I love her. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't kiss my wife and tell her that I love her or my son. You know, um, 
that you know his legacy uh, is kind of a reversal of fortune hmm. kind of legacy. You know, I, I do not want my family to ever doubt that I love them, and I don't want to die alone, and I don't want them to be alone. You know, I, and I think you know that is an incredible revelation for like as like I said for a guy like me to have to realize after after denying myself so many years um, that comfort. You know, I've had plenty of experience with women. I've had plenty of sexual experience, but not a lot of love, not a lot of that uh, uh, kind of emotional attachment. And um, you know, since I've been married, uh, and and a few years before that, since I've you know uh, tried to change my life, you know, to become more uh, of a spiritual person and less of a physical person, if you will, you know, it's changed. So it was. Uh, that I, I kind of, you know, I felt badly for him, you know, for for a few moments, um, because we were all we were there for him. We wanted him to. We we wanted him back in our lives. He just he couldn't do it. You know, he could not do it. And it, 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 and you know, when you're thinking about your life and you're looking at your father, because I looked at my father's life and I thought, well, what made him that way? And then I remembered all those summers that I spent with my grandma Rose. She was mean. You know, every other summer we would spend one summer with our grandma Mary, one summer with our grandma Rose. When it was grandma Mary, it was, it was parades, you know, it was bouquets. It was, was great. It was my mother's mother. But when we were going to go to my grandma Rose's, tears and fears and, what is so ironic, and this is, comes years after going through, looking at her life, one of the incredible ironic indications about what kind of person she was, in her backyard, she had tears and tears, you know, tear, scaffolds, if you will, tears and tears of uh, cactus. That's what she raised. <laughs> That's what she, We used to drive to the desert. We used to drive to Indio when I was a child. I remember this. Before there was a 10 freeway that went, took you out there, we would drive for hours so she could go cactus shopping. What a revelation that was for me later on as I, in my adulthood, you know. Give me, give me some snapshots, uh, from you being around her. Oh, we, it, it was there, as I said, fear. I mean, uh, how would she express what it was that made you Afraid. She didn't want us talking too loud. She didn't want us to, you know, we, we couldn't play too loud. We couldn't disrupt her, whatever she was doing. And I, I got to tell you, you, you know those pictures you see of kids sitting in the corner with their face to the wall on a high chair? That was me. She literally made me do that. She literally faced me to the wall in the corner, looking at a, at the corner of a, a, a of a where wow. the two walls came together. And my sisters, very early on. Uh, God bless them. I love them. Uh, and, and I have forgiven them for this, but they would collude and they would lie, uh, to my grandmother and say, Oh, Randy hit us, grandma, Randy, you know, and in the corner. And would she hit you too? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She was a slapper. She was a hitter. And so, you know, I realized, um, that my, my father was brought up in this environment. What was what was her husband like? Well, see, that's the, there's the thing. My father, the only the only grandfather I knew was my step grandfather. Uh, 
my grandpa Pete, but he was her second husband, which I didn't know until years later. Uh, and my, uh, my uncle Chris, his half brother was the only uncle I knew from that side of the family, but he was, they were, he was Pete's son. Mm-hmm. My father's father was a boxer, professional boxer in Mexico. And I, I only met him once. And he didn't speak English and I didn't speak Spanish. Uh, and he it looked very much like my father. He was big, you know, and he was imposing, you know. Um, so uh, I really never knew him. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, and, and my, my, Did my grandpa. Did your father know him? He knew, I, I suppose he knew him. I, we, you know, but he was out we never had the life. kind of relationship where we ever talked about my father's life. I never talked to my father about his past. Too, too much fear. So what was your mother like? She was an angel. She was just... Yeah, that often seems to be the, uh, the case with the, the spouse yeah. of the abuser. Yeah. She was a classic uh, victim. You know what I'm saying? Uh, she, everyone loved her, you know, Aunt Lupita and Lupe, and she was, you know, she was loved by, um, all of uh, my cousins and, of course, us. And, but, you know, she allowed the abuse to, to, to occur. Uh, she did fight back and she paid for that. Uh, what a terrible position. Oh, for, was, for yeah. especially when it's that era of divorce is off the table. Oh, I imagine was, you were raised Catholic. Right. Right. So, you know, divorce is, you know, you might as well tell God to go fuck himself. Yeah. 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 There, there yeah, we now there was a there was a moment in time when he left and it was heaven. <laughs> I mean, it was oh, you know, we could breathe. For, unfortunately for us, he came back. You know, into our lives. And, you know, and I remember those hollow promises he made. I'll never yell at you, I'll never hit you again, blah blah blah. Was he a drinker? He was not an alcoholic. He was mean. He was not an alcoholic. But he didn't, you know, he, he, and he wasn't the kind of guy that, you know, uh, was only physical with kids. I mean, with us. I mean, I've seen him get into fights with men, you know, when, uh, when he would play ball. You know, he was, he was, he was, uh, baseball, basketball, ba- baseball. He was, uh, like I said, he, he played semi pro ball. There was like an East Coast, uh, 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 league, Mexican league in East LA. Played at Belvedere Park and all these other parks in, uh, you know, over in East LA. Uh, so I grew you mean up. mean East, East Side or East Coast? No, East LA. East Los oh, Angeles. Okay. Cause you said East Coast. I thought, what, no, no. How the, well, they traveled all the way to New York no, for East, a game? No, East, East LA, East Los Angeles League. Yeah. So, you know, it was all, you know, uh, the ha- Hazard Park, Belvedere Park. There was a lot of parks over there. Guys who. It's a very competitive, you know, I imagine. It was very, com- it was competitive. As am I. I mean, that's one of the things I got from him. You know, that's why I'm still playing ball. I love, I love that kind of uh, physicality. There's um, a there's a muscle that we have in us that can only be exercised through butting heads with somebody. Yeah. And, and for certain guys, I mean, there are guys. Yes. I'm sure you know them too. They don't. They, they don't care about. They, that. they have. They have no response. They don't care. They don't want to do it. They're, they're, or they'll just go to the gym and lift weights. Me, I like, I like, like, you know, I played yesterday and got into it with a guy. I mean, not, not into a, we didn't get to a point of, but you know, just competing. Yeah. You know, the guy that was guarding me and I was guarding him and you know, uh, you know, you're bumping, you know. And there's something too about the oblivion of that focus when it's like, oh, that motherfucker's not getting around me. Right. Right. I will die right. before I let right. that person score. Right. 
And then it's and, not, and, oh, the joy healthy. of scoring the last basket of the day yeah. in your face, you know. Oh, and that's happened so many times. I mean, I've been I'm a good ball player, so you know, it, it's it's uh, it's uh, it's fun, you know. And I, and I've I've had a an incredible amount of injuries since uh, I turned fifty. You know, everything happened. In fact, everything happened after I got married. All my major injuries <laughs> all happened since I've been married. How does that happen? Did your dad? And this is me filtering your story through my experience because I was just talking to my therapist about it this morning. Did your dad show you affection when you were good at sports? Okay. Uh, let me illustrate uh, an event, uh, a basketball event in high school. I was captain of the basketball team in high school. Um, and my father, really until my senior year, never really came to see anything I did. He came to see some varsity football games finally. I had uh, had a great game and uh, scored 24 points and number of rebounds, just just was kicking butt. So I come home and I go, um, hey, Dad, I, I, I made 24 points today in the game. And he said, you scored 24 points. Wow. And that was all he said. That was all he said. Never, he never, he never, and my mother told me after I came back from Vietnam that my father was extremely jealous of me, that he was, uh, uh, athletics, uh, wise, you know, he, uh, he was a good ball player, but he only excelled in baseball. You know, I lettered in track, baseball, um, football, basketball through high school, you know, uh, and I was captain of a couple of teams and was, and I always excelled and he, Apparently, according to my mother, hated that. He hated that. And he was always competing. My father challenged me to push-up contests when I came back from Vietnam. I mean, you know, he was an older guy at that point. But he couldn't, he just, and especially if he started to drink, then it would get very ugly sometimes. But he wasn't an alcoholic. He he wasn't, he was probably... uh, Maybe a binger, uh, yeah. but but really, I he I, uh, that is not my experience of yeah. him that he was drunk all the time. But he but see, he start when my mother died, he guilt drank. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? He guilt drank, and then uh, things would come out. It would have been so nice if, when we were kids, somebody could have just taken us aside and put our arms their arms around us and said. You should know that even though they're in adult bodies, you're being raised by children. Yeah. You're being raised by a child. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Understand that all this stuff that makes you feel terrible is not because right. you're Well, unworthy. that made me feel terrible. You know, um, I can, I, I have a perspective on it today, which is good. Um, through my recovery, I've, I've had to, you know, I, I didn't have to, but if I wanted to have any kind of peace, I had to go through and look at every segment of, you know, that of, of guilt and shame and loathing of my, you know, self-loathing and, and figure out, excuse me, why I felt this way, why it was like this for me, why I have these fears, mm-hmm. why I had them. And were you a violent kid um, or did, did sports take care of it? Sports pretty much took care of it. So when sports went away, for the most part, when did you start using your fists? 
Oh, early. And then a lot when I came back from overseas, you know, and I mean, you know, I was a bouncer in a Hell's Angels bar. You probably heard me say that. I mean, you know, in Sacramento. Was that before or after Vietnam? After Vietnam. No, after, after. Everything was after. I mean, before Vietnam, I mean, really, you know, you know. Did you go to Vietnam right out of high school? No, I, I, about six, eight months. See, I graduated in 68, June of 68. So a year, uh, I was in training to go to Vietnam. I, w- I would have been there in, uh, I think, uh, August, I think, or of 69. But then Hurricane Camille hit. I don't know if you remember Hurricane terrible, Camille. Terrible, terrible hurricane. Right. So we were, we were delayed from that. And then my mother had something, some kind of physical problem that delayed me. So I didn't, I ended up going to Vietnam in November of 69, uh, which meant that I just had, I, my birthday is, end of September. So I actually turned 19 when I, when I went there. So I was a little bit, you know, it was a little bit more than a year after. What, what were you, what was your motivation in going to Vietnam or did you do not want to go? Well, my best friend at the time, uh, who's a friend of mine on Facebook that I found, his name is Bill, Bill. Uh, I don't know if I don't want to break his, his uh, anonymity for him, but, uh, he and I were best friends, right? And he talked me into it. He said, we're going to go to Vietnam together. We're going to go in the buddy system. Back then, they had a buddy system. You go in the service with your friend, blah, blah, blah. Da, 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 da. I wanted to be military police because I wanted to be a policeman. I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to work for LA. In fact, I was a police cadet for LA, uh, LAPD uh, before I went into the service. So I wanted to be MP. Never happened. Because of my scores... I got put into a specialized uh, training, so I was uh, what we call uh, airborne's uh, airborne weapons controller. So I worked on a because your scores were high or low. High. Okay. My scores were high, uh, so I uh, ended up working with you know working with jet aircraft, controlling, calling in close air support, and uh, being targeted uh, quite a lot because we were guys who were bringing in support for guys on the ground. I was on the ground as well, but I was on a hill. So, um, that's, there went that whole thing. And he, my friend Bill, who talked me into going to Vietnam, never went overseas. He ended up doing his tour in, on the East Coast. And when I hooked up with him on, well, he hooked up with me. He found me on Facebook. And the first thing he, he was so guilty. And I hadn't spoken to him in, since I'd been back from Vietnam. Hadn't spoken to him for how long was that? 40 years? Well, at that point, I think it was like 39 years, 30, because it was like three years ago. And he was so sorry. And I told him, I said, you know what? I am who I am today because of that experience. You know, I can't imagine who I would be now because I lived through it, first of all. You know, that's the benefit. And we have to thank him because the East Coast was never invaded. <laughs> that's right. He, t- he was a nurse, became a male nurse. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, and, you know, and then when I came back from over, when I came back from Vietnam, the whole idea of becoming a cop was out the window, totally out the window. Cause I discovered drugs then, you know, and also I'd handled a lot of weapons by that time. And, uh, I knew with my, uh, disposition, putting a weapon in my hand or having access to weapons was going to just end up and very badly for me. So I, uh, and my father had given me a handgun for Christmas, which I gave, which I, you know, immediately gave away because, uh, you know, uh, uh, then, and even now, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't want 
I don't like having handguns around or that kind of that kind of thing. Cause, uh, so, give me some some snapshots from Vietnam and how if if it did it began to change you or things that just kind of affected you in, in a way that felt intense or well you know i i really um fear is a major factor uh when you're in that kind of situation but what you do is you re- you end up making really good friends you know like the guys that i was stationed with you know who i am not in contact with now um but uh you know that is very important i can't imagine yeah. that's that's just got to feel like you you want to cling to them and not let go yeah yeah they they're guys save your life you save each other's lives you know that's and, that's, and they understand what you're going through i imagine right. yeah yeah um so uh, how it changed well let me tell you something i remember walking down my street the day after i got back from vietnam and thinking to myself as i was walking down the street i was looking in the house i'm looking at the houses not into the houses obviously but looking at the houses of the people of you know my of the people that live on the my block and uh and my friend's house and thinking you know what they ever to them it's like a nothing had changed for me everything had changed it was I, I remember thinking to myself, you don't know. You have no fucking idea what a year is. See, a year in Vietnam or any war zone, these, any of these young men that are going overseas now, I can tell you, uh, is like an eternity. Every day is years long. So I came home and people said, hey, you know, hey, Randy, how you doing? Haven't seen you in a while. Haven't seen you in a while. Not haven't seen you in a fucking lifetime. Haven't seen you since your whole world has been turned completely upside down. No, just haven't seen. Like, like you missed him at the bar last week. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Describe the fear for me when you're, when you're over there. When does it first hit you? What does it feel like? I was under fire my first day in country. Really? I was under fire. My best friend, Art Castillo, God bless him, got killed his first day. Killed his first day. Near you? No. I don't even know where he was. And you know, uh, we went over this about the same time. Now, Art was my childhood. I I don't mean Bill. Bill was my high school best friend. Art was my childhood best friend. Uh, Until I moved, I think I told you, uh, like 12 years old, I moved out of Pico Rivera. Well, from like the age of... I mean, we were Cub Scouts together. His mother was my den mother. You know, from the time we were like, you know, old enough to spit, we were best friends. And, um, were you, and mo- were you moved out of Pico Rivera? No, we moved. It was kind stadium? of, it was kind of like a, a move up for us, I, I imagine. Mm-hmm. I think, um, I'm not privy to that information in terms of what my parents, uh, financial, uh, situation was, but it seemed because I ended up with my own room, which I never had before. I had to sleep on the couch. Before that, and then when we moved to Temple City, I had my own room. So it was a move up for me, you know. Um, so, so describe that, that first day in country. What, what, first day in country? Yeah, what you were thinking. First day in country, feeling. landed in Cameron Bay, and, uh, it was hotter than hell. And I'm walking, I'm getting, I'm disembarking, coming down the stairs of that, um, 
whatever the hell that airplane was and um humid so, oh yeah it was like it was like walking it was like uh like <laughs> that there was a line that uh Matthew Broderick had in uh, Biloxi Blues where he said, it's hot, it's Africa hot. <laughs> and and subsequently, I ended up going to Africa and spending a year in Africa. But it was like, it's like hot, Africa hot. It's humid, it's 100% humidity practically, and it's like 110 degrees on that tarmac. And I saw these guys walking that had been in country for a while, and they had, one guy had a shotgun shoved down into his pack, another guy had a, he had like a Bowie knife in his boot, and they looked... They were like the walking dead. And I thought, what the fuck have I gotten myself into here? And then as we, as we got to where it's, it's we like, were, we were going to stay that night, uh, there was a, uh, a mortar attack on the airfield at camera, which they had many of. Um, and nothing prepares you for that. You know, they, they do, you know, there was some perfunctory training, but there's nothing when you real, I mean, and then a week later, I was in, uh, maybe not more than a week, but I remember sitting on a bunker after I'd gotten to my place in Pleiku, and I was in a special forces camp, and I was sitting on a bunker with a guy at night, getting, we were getting high, smoking a bowl of weed, and, um, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but, um, he was from Malibu or someplace. He was from California. Because all the guys in my unit were from New York. But this guy was, this, this guy in this special forces game was from Malibu. He was a surfer guy. And we were just getting, and I, we were getting loaded. And, and, uh, the Ville was like about half a mile from where we, you know, maybe a click from where we were. And, What's um, the Ville? The village? Village, right. Is that where and enemy or night? friendly? Well, I, see, in the daytime, it's, it's a friendly at night. It's a free fire zone for them because at night, well, this is, and I'm, this is what I'm trying to tell you. So we're sitting there and we're smoking and there, and there, we were sitting on top of a bunker and behind us was a hooch with a, the, the, the wall of the hooch was behind us. The bunkers are outside the hooches. So if there's a, if there's a rocket attack, a murder attack, you run out of the hooch, you, ju- you jump into the, Bunker, so we were on the bunker because there was no nothing going on. And and a hooch is the the tent that you sleep in. A hooch is like a it's like a, a hard frame built. You you probably seen them like you've seen if you've seen those old World War Two movies where the guy where the uh, it looks like a train it looks like a it's like a it's like a long hut. Okay, made out of wood. And that's where you live in. That's where you live, right? Okay. And you have like netting, mosquito netting, and blah blah blah. Just look at Platoon. If you see Platoon. In that the hooch that they're in, that's what most hooches in Vietnam look My like. My first thought, too, when you described the tarmac, that's the, the scene right out of Platoon. Oh, too. fuck. Let me tell you something. You know how many guys saw that scene and just got a lump in their throat? Including me. I'm going to tell you, you know, guys that were that are Vietnam vets who've seen that movie, They, I mean, I didn't have those experiences. I'm not sure. I, I don't know who did. I'm sure it happened, but I never had that experience, but I did have some of those experiences. And they are like, I mean, Oliver Stone, I mean, because he was there, you know. Anyway, so I'm sitting there with this guy, and I'm hearing this weird kind of sound, kind of sound, when I'm talking to this guy. I look over, and he's not there, and I'm thinking, what the fuck? And he, uh, this hand reaches up and pulls me off the, off the bunker, off the sandbags, mm-hmm. right? And he goes, "You motherfucker, do you hear that?" I'm like, "What?" He goes, "Look up, look up at the wall there." 
So I'm looking up in the wall. He says, look, look. And there were holes, bullet holes. We were taking fire from the vill. And they had seen the, when we were smoking, oh. they had seen the light from the pipe. And they were shooting at the pipe. And they were missing. They were shooting high. So they were hitting above us. That was the first time, Paul, when you realize someone is actually thinking of killing you. There's nothing in the fucking world like realizing that someone has targeted you. Wow. Not, not just in general, kill somebody, but you. And most guys, if they have time to think that long, die before that, before they're able to process that. That's the kind of fear that you live, you can live in. So is it fair to say that when that thought occurs to you, when, when the fear becomes personal, it, it, it must just be so visceral. Well, it is then, but then you learn not to, you can't, you can't think after if you live through that experience, any kind of experience like that overseas in a war zone and guys will tell you, I'm sure, you know, after that, it's just reaction. Don't think, don't think that's why guys, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 43 years out of there now or whatever it is. I don't have those kind of reactions, but when I first came back from overseas, any noises, loud noises, Backfiring. I mean, you see it in the movies. It's, cl it's cliche now, but it's not cliche for a guy who's a vet. The guys, you're coming back from overseas. You react to those noises. You move. That's why you see guys moving. That's why you see guys moving when they hear a noise. And you know, no one who's been in under fire likes to hear sudden loud noises. And you see them moving, either this or that or whatever. Just move. Don't think. Uh, that's. Like I'm not an expert on this. I'm just giving you my, you know, opinion. But and more, there have been plenty of other guys who've been through a lot more shit than I have. So I'm just telling you what you know how it is for me and how it was for the guys that I, you know, that I knew when I was. Do older. you remember consciously thinking this is changing me? No. Too young. That's a process that older people go through. Would you try to bolster yourself with bravado? Drugs. <laughs> what, were, what were the drugs that speed that this thing over there called ob obesitol that you would take if you knew that was something's going to happen or even if you didn't you would take obesitol and then uh there was a lot of opium smoked a lot of opium and then just the regular weed over there was like the strongest weed you'll ever smoke it's like it was like smoking a tie stick just regular vietnamese weed so very hallucinogenic you know so, and everybody had a, you know, nickname. I had, my nickname over there was Lizard. Why? I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea how I got it, but I was the Lizard and every, in every, you know, we had Boach, we had Lizard, we had the Rat, we had all kinds of guys who had, you know, we had, who had different names, man. I can't imagine a worse drug to be on when you're getting shot at than weed. I mean, the paranoia of weed. Yeah, you smoke that at night. You don't usually smoke it in the daytime. Jesus Christ. I'm afraid what people across the room think of me, let alone they want to shoot me. You know, but see, you're not thinking that, you're thinking like an adult. You're thinking like a person who's, who has a, who processes. That's why guys, that's why the fucking draft is for 18 to 24, 26 year olds. 26 being the l latest. Uh, there were, I don't even remember guys that were, the oldest guy in my outfit was 22, I think. 
You're just not processing. That's why, that's why the draft was created for young, young guys. You don't, you think you're invincible. You think you're invulnerable. You, you don't think about what does this mean for my future? You don't think that. See, you're thinking with an adult brain, you know, as a, as an experienced adult. See, that's not how you think over there. And did you enlist or were you drafted? I enlisted. Yeah. I volunteered. And just because your buddy talked you into it? Well, but you see, look, I wanted to be a cop. So, you know, I had that whole altruistic thing. I was totally fucked up when I was young. I had, you know, wanted to serve man. You know, I wanted to serve the community. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be a good cop. And then I wanted to be a good soldier. And I wanted to use my brain, you know. And that was why we chose the Air Force, you know, and ended up in, with the Army and Special Forces. I mean, you know, it was so ironic to me that, you know, uh, I I ended up living with the army and with special forces those guys were my guys you know because we were surrounded we were, like i said we were on a hill so they were part of our you know we were the specialized group and then they were the part of our you know our uh, entourage if you will were you in vietnam for the tet offensive no that was in 68 okay. so 69 i was there uh for uh the moving to cambodia i was 101st 170th it was a we were all there for that that was in June of 70 or whenever, whenever that happened. And that was secretive, right? Well, because, because it was an we, open secret. I mean, you're right. moving thousands of guys to Cambodia. It was illegal on the part of the, the president to, it was, to yeah. expand the war into Cambodia, but that was supposedly right. to because Yeah, well, it happened overnight. I mean, you know, it was one, one morning we woke up and there were like thousands of other guys like camped out around where we were, literally. You know, were you close to the Cambodian border when you were? We were the tri- I was Pleiku is like tri-border area, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam. Yeah, Central Highlands, which is the center. So you have these two countries coming like this, and then Vietnam here. And and was it because it was close to the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which was the supply mm-hmm. route? Yeah. Right. So you guys wanted to try, your mission was to try to disrupt the supply. Yeah, we, you know, we had, you know, a lot of the stuff I did was top secret stuff. That's why I had a top secret clearance, secret clearance, top secret clearance. So we, you know, there was uh, shit that I'm, I don't even want to talk about even now. But I mean, you know, Arclight um, missions. I don't know if you know what Arclights. No. Arclight, you can, we can talk about. It's a terrific theater Arc, down in Hollywood. Arclight, Arclights were uh, B-52 runs. That's when they dropped big, big tonnage on uh, the Ho Chi Minh Trail and, you know, all that. So I did a lot of that. That was a, like, that was a lot of stuff that I did, you know, uh, controlling those aircraft and blah, 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 and support. And, yeah, so. Do you ever feel guilt or dwell on the cost mm. of that stuff, or is that just too painful or not worth you know, going I, back and looking at it? Sure, I, you know, I, I've had all kinds of guilt, man, including survivor's guilt. I mean, I don't think there's a vet who has any kind of a conscience who doesn't have regrets. Sure. Yeah. And why, why them and why not me? Why art the first day overseas? You know, my parents and my family didn't even tell me until I came back from Vietnam that he had died. They didn't, uh, they didn't want me to freak out especially knowing that he got killed his first day. And then I came back and my uncle let my uncle my uncle Joe who was my my mother's brother 
who's also passed away now. But he, you know, we were playing pool in his pool room and he let it slip. He didn't realize I didn't know. That's how I found out that Art had been killed over there. That was when I came back. And it was like, you know. Did you feel anything? Oh, yeah. I freaked out. Yeah, it was not good. It's not good. Freaked out outwardly or just inwardly? Oh, outwardly. What'd you do? What the fuck? You know, just, I don't know. Got mad. Smash I mean, you know, you don't cry. I mean, you know, I didn't, there was no crying back then. You don't cry. You get mad. You know. Which I would imagine made it very convenient to be a bouncer at a Hell's Angel bar. Well, I just had, I got into a lot of, you know, just a lot of confrontations when I was younger, you know, so. Before Vietnam? No, after after. Vietnam. No, after, after. Before Vietnam, you know, there was, you know, no. I remember you telling the story about uh, the smell of brute. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Tell this. Oh, well, uh, when I, first of all, I used to send back tons of dope to my sisters and friends and uh weed or weed yeah, yeah weed and uh you know in 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 like little in envelopes you know not 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 bales but little you know maybe a couple of lids at a time you know a lid an ounce whatever and uh so when i knew i was coming back from overseas i was completely hooked on speed i was you know just i i just couldn't imagine living without it so uh, some guy who would who uh I guess he was doing something. He was doing something like that. And he goes, yeah, you put it in a, put it in a bottle of aftershave. So I bought like 150 bucks worth of this stuff because they come in little vials, little like ounce vials. It's liquid, the speed. Yeah. yeah. And you, it's like, like those medical, just like a medical vial. You break them and then you pour them into, you know, whatever. So what we would do is we would break them and pour them into a Coke, drink it, and you're up for, you're up for two days. One little vial puts you up for two days and you're talking. The whole time, just brrr. you know, it was one of those things where uh, you know you and your partner, you know, or you and your partners will sit down and you all take speed, and then you're just waiting for someone to breathe that's talking, so you can jump in and start talking because <laughs> uh, you just can't stop talking. What happens when you come down and you crash from smoke from, opium to come down? But then uh, you're on duty, right? Yeah, yeah. So what would happen if? Shit started to go down, and you're takes more speed on opium. Take yeah. more speed oh, and yeah. get up. But fear is a great awakener. <laughs> you know, if there is incoming, what we would call incoming one twenty twos or mortars, or uh, you know, if you're taking small arms fire, you're fucking straight. Trust me. Yeah, you're not going to just be going. Hey, it's not like being drunk. I mean, if you smoked, you've smoked weed. I mean, you know, you can come out of it. But you can't come out of drunk. You can come out of high. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's a revelation. <laughs> I don't know. So you poured all this stuff in a, in that's a bottle. So I broke, I, I just broke, I mean, I must, there must have been a hundred vials at my feet, man. I just broke the speed open and poured it into the brute bottle. I just rinsed it out with water because I didn't want to put soap in there to try to yeah. rinse it out. And the smell never came out. So I got back home, uh, with, a big, you know, that big green brute bottle full of speed, man. And there, there was, I mean, I was home free. But every, and ever since that time, when brute, I would smell brute, I would have a contact high. And it's just like, yeah, I'm start, I would start speeding just on the natch. You know what I'm saying? Wow. So, yeah. But, uh, I didn't think I could live without it. And I eventually poured out, uh, cause I was, it didn't, it, what, um, 
being back in the world and being on that high didn't work for me. It didn't work. It was too like being back there. I didn't like that. I didn't like that feeling. And then there were plenty of other things to do. I mean, there was, I was introduced to LSD. You know, this was like 1970 and mescaline. There were plenty of other things I could take that were hallucinogenic, that were, you know, psychedelic. So I became very, very hooked on that stuff. You know? What was that the most soothing thing to you when you would, when you would come home? What, what took you to a place where you felt okay? Really, you know, um, pretending that I was okay was what, you know, I ended up, you know, I had a, I rehooked up with an old girlfriend and we would go to the park when I would, when I would have a time, you know, time off or something, you know, like, uh, if I wasn't working, you know, cause I was still in the military. Um, but I was basically still, you know, working in the, you know, working as a soldier, you know, so. Even though you were stateside. Even though I was stateside. Yeah. I, I got stationed up in uh, Sacramento. That's how I ended up in Sacramento. Ended up back in Sacramento. I, I got back in Sacramento. They, and they were going to put me in an airborne squadron, airborne radar. It's called AWACS in the Air Force. Uh, airborne, uh, weapons and control system, which is like, uh, you probably, yeah, it's may, that may thing that spins around. It, yeah, it but look, no, looks but, but planes. you know, I don't know if it's that, if it's true now, but there, there, the United States is covered by airborne radar planes that are flying constantly that were back then in 1969 because there was still that danger of ICBMs and all that bullshit. So they, the, the, the whole of the Western United, of really the whole of the U.S., but mostly the Western and Eastern coasts were covered by airborne radar. I but see. I was, but I was scheduled to go back overseas to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. So when I found that out, I, I asked the flight surgeon, I said, am I going to be going, am I going to be flying back over Vietnamese airspace? He says, yes. I said, I'm not doing that. I said, I'm, there's no way I'm flying back because I knew how many aircraft had been shot down over there. Because I worked, that's what I, that was my job. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of aircraft that were shot down that were never reported, you know, and I said, I'm not, I'm not putting myself back over there again. And, uh, I said, you gotta, you gotta help me. I said, you look at my service record. I have, you know, I've been awarded a few blah, blah, blahs, this and that and bullshit. And I said, he says, unfit for flying, cannot sit in a confined space for da, 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 da. Rubber stamped me out of there. But that's where, you know, I was headed back. I was headed back because, you know, like I said, it was, the war was still going strong at that point, you know, in 1970. Starts to wind down. Vietnamese, Vietnamization was occurring in 71. And then, you know, by 75, we're out of there. But um, And when did you get out of the Army and what was the reason? I was at the Air Force. I got out Air in Force, 1973. Yeah. 1973, May 1973 in Wisconsin. It was the greatest, the greatest thing that happened to me. The greatest thing that could have happened to me was they, they thought they were screwing me over. So they put me on a radar site, 100 guys in the middle of a cornfield, literally in the middle of a cornfield in Osceola, Wisconsin, and saved my ass. I, you know, I, I, you know, Mexican kid from East L.A., and I ended up with all these white people in the middle of America and learned to eat bratwurst and corn on the cob and uh, drink uh, beer and play uh you know underhand fast pitch softball and and uh tractor pulls and going to the fair and Jeez. seeing Neil Diamond at the at the uh Minnesota State Fair in 1970 whatever 3 or was it after I got out maybe and oh man you know working on a farm for a summer and 
you know, it was it was good. It was good. But uh, you know, you know, they hated the, the the all the guys that were all the the my my uh, my uh, top sergeant and the the officers there hated my. I was the only Vietnam vet on the base when I got back. They hated that. Why? That there was just this. They thought that all Vietnam vets thought they were hot shit. That was their mentality. And so you're not gonna you're not gonna come with that. You're not gonna come back. You're not gonna come onto my base with that Vietnam veteran bullshit and act like you fucking you know own the world. That was their. So my my top sergeant my my uh, he was a he was a seven striper six striper I don't remember, and uh, he just had it in for me. So we were I was always catching shit from him and you know. So he tried to make my life hell, but even with that, it still was great. I still you know I loved. Uh, living there you know and uh, it was a great time it's like three years of really good time learning to drive in the snow oh it's the best <laughs> turning into the skid that's you know right that? <laughs> plugging your car in at night mm -hmm. I never knew any of that you know a tank heater what's that you know uh, so yeah and that was an experience coming back from Vietnam and driving to Wisconsin uh, in uh, it was uh, was it December, January, January of 71, driving to Wisconsin. I grew up in California. I had a California car. Heater didn't work. Tires were bald. Oh, no. So I'm driving. Everything was fine till I got to Iowa. <laughs> and got caught in a blizzard <laughs> coming out of Des Moines. I didn't know, I didn't know shit about turning into the skid. I didn't know. So I thought, Oh, I know the magic thing is to buy snow tires. So I bought snow tires. 50 bucks a piece didn't help me a bit. I drove out of this town and, uh, it was, uh, Oh my God. It was coming out of going, going north up to Wisconsin. Oh, and I should know the name. I, Dubuque? No, no, no. It was a small town. Uh, something fall. I, not River Falls. Not, that's in, no. But anyway, coming out of there and just getting past the tree line, right? Because you, you know, all these small towns, they all have trees that, mm. uh, that uh, they line the streets. They're, they're windbreaks. Of course, I didn't know that then. I, I just thought it was for looks. But realized later that those trees help break the wind, especially like in, in, uh, when there's a uh, blizzard. As soon as I got past those trees, the wind is blowing my car. And it blew it ac literally across the road, and there are cars coming the other way. I turn away from the skid. My car goes into a 360. And uh, are you from the Midwest? Or do you, I am you from Chicago. Okay. Yeah. So you, you may, may or not know this. In, in Wisconsin and Minnesota and places like that, out in the country, the roads are built. They're, they're, it's almost like a dike system. The roads are higher than the fields. Then the cornfields. So the banks from the blizzard. So the so so snow. So they have then they have ditches. They have like ditches oh, yeah. with culverts. That's where you things. wind up when you're drunk. Exactly. But the snow all accumulates there, which is kind of good. So you're you're literally it takes the snow a long time to catch up yeah. to the road. Yeah. Right. I didn't know any of this until later. Anyway, the snow was already almost at the level of the road. I go off the road and it, I go down. My car goes down in through the snow. And I'm buried. I'm in a whiteout. My, there's snow all around me. I had to force the door open and crawl up through the snow to get out. I was in that town for three days in a church. 
I was late for my uh, to get to my base, my assignment for three days because I was stuck in the snow. I learned a lot about snow. <laughs> so let's fast forward oh, yes. to um, when the violence began and you began your your temper began to get out of control. Oh well, you know I probably in eighty eight. Oh, so a long time. Oh, I mean, no, I was, you said out of control. Oh, okay. When, when did <laughs> There it, was violence all through that time. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I uh, started working at that Hells Angels bar back in the 70s. You know, when what, I. What brought you to that? I was 75. I was so, you know, because I was working in martial arts, doing martial arts, and my, my one of my senseis was the manager of that bar. So he brought me in and, uh, and then I was doing judo as well. So, you know, it was back then. And uh, uh, so it's a perfect place to be for me. Plus, I was got all my drinks for free. Mm. And then I was working, in, you know, I ended up being a bartender. And, I, you know, I bartended. I was bartending uh, when I came back from Vietnam. I ended up getting a job in the NCO club as a bartender. That's what started my bartending career. So I was bartending really all the way through until I got clean, you know, up until 88. So were were you intimidated when you were the bouncer at that or were you just running on uh, testosterone or I mean I would I there were probably times when I was in a little fear when there was some you know if see I, I mean it, there was a, there wasn't a lot of violence there there was a threat of violence guys would go in there prospects would go in there you know it wasn't like guys went there you know, I mean these were and it wasn't all 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 hell's angels I mean that was just like a there there were guys that were uh, in the Hell's Angels and guys that were prospects, you know, uh, that would go in there and sometimes there would be violence and sometimes not, you know, but, uh, if there was there, you know, we were, you know, there were a number of us that were there to handle it. It wasn't a TGI Fridays. No, <laughs> no, you, you weren't, you were seeing mostly guys in leather jackets and jeans and, you know, long hair and beards and shit. And, you know, kind of like ZZ top, you know, yeah. <laughs> that kind of shit. Not a lot of them order cheese sticks. No. No, no. So, give me some any snapshots from from that time period. Well, just I, you know, it, it's very hazy for me because I was drunk a lot, was high a lot, and with you know a lot of different uh, women, and you know, and then I you know I I did that until I graduated from college. And then I worked for Club Med. See, there's that whole Club Med mm -hmm. life that we haven't talked about that I right. spent five years doing, you know, and, uh, and there wasn't, there, it wasn't violence. It was just out of control drinking and partying, you know, the or, club, the Club Med thing. Club Med. Yeah. And how you didn't die from syphilis is beyond me. You know, it's amazing. I mean, I got to tell you, I remember being in Africa, being in Africa, in Senegal where the president was last week mm -hmm. in Dakar, which I, that was one place that I'd spent uh, six months at. And there was a club med there. There was a club med right on the coast, right outside of Dakar. It's a short drive on the coast. Um, and it was, uh, you know, uh, why am I talking about Dakar? Oh, not dying of syphilis. Oh, <laughs> it was called, it's called SIDA in French. How do you spell that? I, I don't know. C-I-D-A. Okay. And it has uh, the uh, 
I'm always looking. It's a up communicable it. disease. It's, you know, it's 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 got a French d- derivation. It might even be SIDA, but it's what what. And I'd never heard of it. But we were, you know, I was sitting around with a bunch of other GOs. Those are employees of the club, and this was 1983, maybe 84, when when AIDS was just coming to the United States. Mm. I think that's when that that air that was an air steward. That brought it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they actually found the number one, and what do they call him? The number, number one? Patient zero. Patient zero or patient number one or whatever, who, you know, started uh, in San Francisco going to those spas, mud baths and stuff, and he's the guy that created that whole epidemic in the United States. But he caught his in Africa. That's where it, it's originated yeah. in Africa. But I remember sitting down with a bunch of guys one night, and we were, and girls, and we were all talking, and they were talking about this thing called SIDA. And they were saying, oh, it's gonna, it's really bad and it's, da, da, da. but up until that time, I mean, at Club Med, it was, and even you're probably a few years after, because it never really, it didn't become an epidemic for a few more years. But them saying, oh, this is bad, you know, blah, blah, blah. So CETA was AIDS before you knew it was AIDS? No, it was, or, or it was HIV? A, the, um, that was the French, uh, derivative. I mean, the French, uh, name for it, CETA. For HIV? Yeah. Okay. For AIDS. Uh, well, AIDS is, AIDS is uh, technically the symptoms of right. a- HIV, not not full blown. I thought it was. I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. But in any case, yes. So uh, that so there was a hint of maybe things were going to change. But you know, we kept everybody kept passing partners around. You know, that was the big thing about Club Med was having plus people go multiple to multiple sex partners. Yeah, partners. people go to Club Med to, to right. fuck. Oh, yeah. To get a suntan and fuck. That's and right. Forget about their lives. That's right. That's right. And there was a lot of that going on and I was a major part of that sure. wherever I was. So, you know, um, you know, it was a wonderful time if I'd been sober enough to have enjoyed it more because I traveled around the world. You know, I worked in Mexico, worked in uh, in. Uh, Africa, I, you know, I was in uh, Tunisia and in uh, Dakar, Senegal, uh, uh, you know, and then I lived in Paris for a while, worked in Greece, Italy. Um, so it was just, it was a, it's a good time. Wow. Uh, but then it started, you know, my, my drinking got heavier and heavier and I got, uh, my attitude got worse and worse and worse. And uh, eventually they fired me, you know, <laughs> it's, such an ignominious fate for me to be fired from Club Med for being too crazy. You know, that that, that was that was bad. So what happened after Club Med? You came back to the States? I came back to the States and my French girlfriend followed me, which was a big mistake. Chantal, she followed me. She was from Paris. In fact, her last name was Paris, Paris. And uh, that went very bad. And um, that was in 84... And uh, within about f- five months of that, my mother went in for a simple operation on her ankle. She'd broken her ankle. They were going to put a uh, a uh, rod in her ankle, in her leg. Uh, so she went in for that, and they over-anesthetized her, and um, she died. Well, she was brain dead. Uh, and uh, that was really the beginning of the end for me. You know, that was um, 19... 19- so, you know, in Vietnam and in other war zones, you'll find that nobody dies on Christmas Day and nobody dies on New Year's Day. I don't know if you knew that or not, Mm-mm. but they, people, Americans don't die on, they'll, on Christmas Day. They'll push day. it one, one day they or the other. Push it a day ahead or behind. And my mother died on January 2nd of 1985. Um, and 
you know, my whole, you know, I was really doing a lot of drugs and drinking a lot and have, I was having one of those twilight zone, um, live, uh, moments in my life almost every night where I kept thinking that the phone was going to ring and it was going to be my mother, you know, mm-hmm. saying, where are you? You know, why didn't you come and see me? Because I, you know, I, I remember her calling me right before she passed away, right before she went into the hospital and, uh, saying, you know, no one's calling me, don't you love me? And, you know, well, you're just so disconnected from your feelings. Uh, I was so disconnected from my feelings, maybe get more personal, um, that I just said I would come, and I never did. And boom, she was gone, you know. Um, so then there was a lawsuit, and uh went on for three years. And finally, and we settled it in 1988, in March or February of 1988, and in April of 1988, I was sober. I got so I was struck sober. You know, I was had a moment of clarity. You know, and um, changed my life. You know, so describe that day. <laughs> the day that I just that I realized I needed to get some help. Um, I had a girlfriend who was one of those little. She was like a starlet. She was former Miss Iowa. Um, how ironic that is. Mm-hmm. And, um, she was, she was, uh, trying to make it in Hollywood. And we had met at Stanley's, drunken night at Stanley's. And, you know, uh, she was beautiful. And I was, and I was at the end of my, really at the end of my life, that life. Um, and, uh, getting in a lot of fights. Yeah. Oh, I got. It. Oh, I mean, I. Those were times when I was wake. I, I actually did wake up a few times with blood on me. That wasn't my own. I would come to in the morning, and there would be blood on me, and I. And it wasn't mine. And you didn't know. How and I didn't got know there. how I got. Did not. So yeah, there was that. There was that. So that's true. And I can't even tell you about those experiences because I don't remember them. But they did happen. And um, but uh, and she was one of those experience. I mean, she you know woke up with her the next morning, and there she was. And then we ended up starting to have a relationship, and found out later that she was having a relationship with a producer, and we had been lying to me all about that, and blah blah blah. In any case, um, so um, uh, I was sitting in my uh, studio apartment up on Sherman Way, and um, I just got a and I had, we had gotten a settlement from my mother's uh, death. Uh, and, uh, that was after three years of haggling and blah, blah, blahing. And, uh, so I had money. So I, I had my, my dealer, uh, his eyes got bigger than plates when he realized how much money I had. And he was going to take, here's the plan. The plan was he was going to take my money. He was going to buy all this, uh, drug. And I would never have to buy drugs again because we were going to live on the profit. Solely the profit. I would get all my money back and then I would be able to live on the profit from the sales of all the dope that uh, he was going to sell for me. How could that go wrong? How could that go wrong? But So I had a new bag of dope, speed, or uh, cocaine and, and weed, and I bought one of those new, one of those lucky bottles of vodka that don't break on impact, made out of plastic. We talked about that before, I think. Um, you know, that, uh, and so I'm sitting in my, uh, uh, my studio apartment with a on my beanbag chair and um, and a voice came into my head that said you're done it wasn't my voice you know how when you're loaded sometimes you hear your voice talking to you mm-hmm. 
or a voice that you that may not be your voice, but it's a familiar voice. It's that interior dialogue voice. But this was a voice I'd never heard before. And it said, you're done. And it, it was... It, it was scary, but I knew it was, it was, I was done and I had all this new stuff. I had all this stuff. I, I, I literally was loaded to the gills, ready to start another run. And, um, at that time I was a part-time actor and a full-time drunk. So I, w- I was a member of SAG. So I called SAG and, um, Screen Actors Guild for the uninitiated and, uh, they said, call this number. It was Studio 12. And, uh, there was Tom Key, K, or, uh, on the, on the other end of the line. And he said, yeah, come on down here. You know, so I go to, I go this to, is, this, st- is, this was one of the first rehabs in, in Los Angeles. Recovery houses. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right. Specifically for, um, people in the studio system, right. actors, right. musicians. Right. right. There was yeah. a couple of famous guys and girls that went through there. Mm. And, uh, before I, before I uh, went there and, uh, but I go, <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to bust anybody's anonymity there, but I walked, I walked up the front steps and there was this big guy and a, and his, and his wife and they had like two teeth between them. Mm-hmm. They were like, "Hey, come on in, you know. Welcome to Studio 12." And I was like, "Oh my God, what have I, what have I done?" They, all, all they needed to do was be if they were wearing raincoats, it would have been perfect. And it was like a, just a nightmare, you know. It's like, "Oh my God, what what is going on here?" And uh, but you know that my life began to change that you know uh, very that very day, and. Uh, Started, you know, you know, it was a rebirth day. It wasn't a, it was like a rebirth day. You know, I, I was thinking as you were describing that voice coming into your head saying, I'm done. And you had all this stuff in front of you. I had a similar experience in my life in that. All the stuff that I thought would make me happy and fix me just made me realize even more how empty I was inside and that I needed something else. And I can't help but think that you saw it in black and white. I've got my drug dream come true. And on a certain level, you knew, oh, this isn't going to lead anywhere but eventually i'm out of that money and i'm more fucked up yeah well i don't know that i had that i was that insightful yeah i i I don't think it's even necessarily conscious but i think sometimes our 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 brain and our soul can figure things out that that our conscious mind can't yeah there was this i'm sure it was my soul that was speaking it was coming through you know because there was no reason for that to happen there was no reason for that day, on that day at that time, for that voice to come into my head. There was no reason. And you've been sober since that day. Since that day. Yeah. Since that day. So talk about what you've learned about yourself and how you carry yourself in the, in the world since, since getting sober. What did you, what were the revelations to you? Well, and the changes that began to take place. Well, you know, I 
realized that I'd been lying to myself and to a lot of other people about who I was. And I realized that I was, I had buried who I might have been under a ton of fear. And um, I think, and I believe really, that recovery is about recovering the true essence of who we are. You know, it is really, that to me is what, reco- it, it's kind of like when you think of recovering a body or recovering people from uh, a disaster. You know, we are recovering. And I had been, re- I have been in the process of recovering really a, the original Randy. You know, who that kid was, you know, as a youngster who had, you know, um, a joy of life and just, um, and was loving and caring and, uh, and wanted the best for himself and for others. You know, because I, I, I had, uh, totally just put a lot of distance between who that person is, uh, and who, who I had become. So, you know, I I had to do a lot, and I've talked about a lot of that already, but it's really about finding out, okay, why am I like this? Why, what, you know, what has made me this way? You know, I I did not accept who I was. I didn't like who I was. I really hated myself, really, you know, and why not? I mean, if, you know, I, I, I think it would be so beneficial if there was some way to take a spiritual snapshot of people before and after, <laughs> you know, because a lot of people um, uh, uh, slip back into that old behavior because they forget where they came from, what they were like, you know, and I don't ever want to do that. Yeah, I like you have that saying that our last day loaded or, or our first day that, that, that we come in, we should have a photograph around our neck. Absolutely. So in case we start to get any attitude, somebody can go. You Let me know. see that photo again. Yeah. <laughs> Let me look at that. Yeah. Oh, God. You know, I got that idea when I, I think it was, I don't know if it was my, my daughter, you know, they take those soccer, when she was doing soccer and they, you, you know, and she's got a, there's a picture of her. It might be at school, but she's like totally crying, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but they, we couldn't get her to stop crying because she was, she that was just where she was at. So we took a picture of her crying. They took a picture of her crying. And I thought, my God, what a great idea, you know, to take a picture of people, you know, before and after. If you think that you're, you know, because a lot of people think they're all that after a while, you know, and, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a blue collar guy and, you know, um, I, I love what I do today. You know, I, I, uh, I'm able to do what I do today because, um, uh, you know, clean. You know, because I'm not that guy anymore. And your and your essence isn't weighed down by fifty layers of shitty coping mechanisms. Right. Well, my own my coping me- mechanism was fight or flight or fuck. Well, that too, but that's a way. That's a, that's also a, a, a kind of a flight. You know? Yeah, that's a flight from emotional uh, responsibility. You know, I, I uh, you know, even today I carry my backpack. You see me, I always have my backpack with me because that was how I lived my life. It's a metaphor for my life. It was a metaphor for my life before uh, because if I couldn't carry it with me, I didn't want it. I didn't want to own it. I wanted always to be able to say, F you, I'm out of here. I'm done. And I did that. I mean, I literally did that to a couple of beautiful women that I was living with. And I just, they, we had a fight. I just walked out. You know, I'm, I'm going to be 12 years married. 12 years married. That is an amazing, to me, that's just amazing. <laughs> that I'm, and I, and I love 
my life today and I love who I am today and I love my, my wife, I love my kids and I want what I have. That's the trick, really, is wanting what you have. Not, not, have, not so much having what you want, but wanting what you have. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So. Um, but it, you can't get there intellectually. No. And you, you can't, you cannot. You cannot. You cannot think your way into it. No. You have to act your way into it. You have it. to act your way into gratitude. Right. And often that means getting outside of yourself and caring about another human being. And you know what? And for me, I mean, getting married was incredible. Having a child was, and the, that really changes everything. For, you know, at least for me it did, you know. It, it just, uh, uh, and I think anyone with children would, will know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And if you're married and you have, and you have a wife that you love, I'm sure that you, you know what I mean. Uh, when you become, I, I never, I gotta tell you, I never thought, first of all, that I would ever be married. I didn't get married until I was 51. Uh, I never thought I would have a child. Didn't have a child till I was 56. So, um, I never thought that would happen for me because I was too selfish and I was too unable to have a lasting relationship. What do you think changed? Well, I, I, I think, you know, when I met my wife, the first day we, the first date we had, we talked about having a child. <laughs> I think I was ready for the responsibility. That is probably the most important thing. That's so funny because I would think, oh my God, what a red flag that, the, that these two people are like so far down the road. But I, you know, it, clearly it's, it's, it's worked out. Oh, it has worked. I mean, look. Yeah, I, I, those I have a spiritual advisor and uh, and others close to me at the time, who when I told them, hey, I'm getting married, and they were like, what? You're what? Because I was like the ba- I was the bachelor of the you know, there's no way Randy's going to get married. And then I told them we're having a child, and what? You're having a, uh, and it, and it, that was a process. I mean, we went through a few years of you know of miscarriages and things like that, but you know, eventually you know God brought us our child, you know, and. uh but yeah, you know, this whole, I mean, I look at my life today, everything in it, the good and the seemingly bad or not good is a blessing. You know what I mean? Just a total blessing. I, I yeah. Expand on that for, because I know some people will be like, and I agree with you, but help the person out there who doesn't believe or understand that bad things can be blessings. Quote, well, unquote, bad thing. Yeah. Well, there's the obvious, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. There's that obvious uh, answer. But I think also um, part of that, part of that saying is um, it makes you appreciative of what you do have. And also, it's taken me years to come to the conclusion that not everything is permanent. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, feelings are not permanent. Situations are not permanent. I mean, there are, you know, there are conditions that can be permanent, you know, uh, uh, if you're, you know, injured in some way or, you know. But how you feel about it may change. That's right. That's what's not permanent. It's your feelings. And that has taken many, many years of going through it and then realizing 
by experience. You know, there was an old, I saw in a movie, the guys, and it was something that had, something had happened, and one of the characters had said, why didn't you tell me that was going to, and the guy looked at him and said, showing's always better than telling. Yeah. It's always better than telling. So, uh, you know, we learn, people like me, knuckleheads like me, we learn through experience that, yeah, it is going to change. What I think is really bad now, look, even Vietnam, worst experience of my life at the time, but when I, you know, after years, after a few years of being away from it, um, you know, has been addiction. The worst thing, being in that is the worst thing. And then being freed from the, from the bonds of that addiction, you know, uh, as long as I maintain a spiritual balance is, it's a blessing. As I look back on it, as long as I don't put it away, as long as I don't turn my back on my past. Mm-hmm. See, that's, that's the key to remember the good stuff and the bad stuff. That the bad stuff, yes, it happened, but we can, we moved away from that. We, we can recover from that. And I think that's why I always hark on how important supports group, support groups can be because therapy is, is great and for, for certain things, but there's nothing like sharing your experience and your shame with somebody else who's also lived that and seeing that recognition in their eye that they're not bad. Their <laughs> life has just been covered up with unhealthy coping mechanisms. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that is, uh, very important to know you're not alone or you're not the only one. Uh, that what a revelation what a what a feeling <laughs> I think that was the one when, when i you know first got clean that was probably one of the although at the time i couldn't process that but knowing that i was not alone that i wasn't the only one who was who had lied not the only one who had done horrible things to people and uh to myself as well but that I wasn't the only one who was doing that. That it wasn't that. Hey, you know, kind of, you know, what is normal? You know, I, that that's always a question. <laughs> I was talking with somebody the other day um, about it was a bunch of us from the support group were having dinner, and I was saying that people that haven't lived a certain experience, that haven't experienced the feelings of your lowest lows and the shame. And the guilt um, can never really fully understand. You don't feel like they can ever really fully understand you and see you 100%. And the people that do, because they've lived a similar experience, there's a bond that you feel like you've been through a, a, a type of war, like you've been in a type of a foxhole. And I immediately felt guilty after I said that because I was like, that's a disservice to, to people who've been in actual war. And so mm. I guess I, w- I want to ask you, as somebody who's been through both the internal battle of addiction and the external battle of being in war, is that is that a fair analogy or does that denigrate? Is there a parallel somewhere? Does that denigrate what? No, uh, I don't think so. Uh, well, not comparing it to the horror of war, but just in terms of that bond that you feel right. with somebody else because... You've you've been through this internal battle well, in your head where where you want to die. You hate yourself yeah, so much you yeah. want to die. Well, there is a there is, you know, you're asking about parallel versus correlation. I think, you know, there there is no parallel between recovery and being surviving a uh, combat experience, but there are correlations. There are, there are connections that can be made. There are. Um, 
analogies that can be made, you know, that are legitimate. I mean, you know, why him and not me? Mm-hmm. That's the biggest one. You know, we do that all the time in recovery. Why is, look, I've been 20, over 25 years clean and there were guys, and I've said, you've heard me say this before, you know, that knew more guys and helped more guys than, than I ever will. And they're loaded or they're dead now. Why are they? There were guys when I was overseas that, um, went left instead of gone right that were in that, that were in that hooch and they, they, they might have been outside with me or they went there and I didn't go there and they're dead and I'm not. Or they got stationed here and I didn't and they're dead and I'm not. So there are those kind of correlations. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. That does it. But there's it? nothing, yeah, there is no direct parallel. There, there isn't. I mean, you know, uh, there was a, a director named, uh, uh, Fuller, Sam Fuller. And, uh, he directed all these, uh, World War II, not a lot of them, but a few, the big red one, mm-hmm. steel helmet. And, um, they asked him, uh, somebody asked him once, said, you know, you make your, your war movies seem so, so realistic. You know, how, how, how do you do that? And, 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 and are, are your war movies really, would you say they're like war, that they, that they come close to the war experience? And he said, let me tell you how you make the war experience come home for a person who's going to a movie. You go to the drive-in where they're showing a movie about war. You go up on a ladder behind the screen. You drill a hole through the ladder. You put a rifle through the hole, and you snipe at the people while they're watching the movie. Wow. That's how you make a war movie real for people. So the war movie is not war. That's pretty simple. You know, it's like a woman can tell you about having a baby, but you're never going to feel what it's like if you're a man. Never. Now, you can draw correlations. You can say, oh, the pain is like, you can make an analogy, the pain is like, you know, you've heard that before. It's like having a watermelon come out of your your ass, you know, or whatever. But you don't, until you feel that pain, you know. So, and I I have made those analogies, you know, I've made those. uh, Is a watermelon coming out of your ass considered a fruit baby or an ass baby? (laughs) That I don't know. I think that's interpretive. (laughs) Uh, one of the things that uh, those of us that know you quote often is your <laughs> your phrase, "Be shut up." Oh yeah, yeah. Just Amazing. be shut up. Yeah, there are be. times when the world doesn't need to know your opinion. Right, right. Somebody doesn't need to know that they're wrong. Right, and you're right. Yeah. I think uh, in. That kind of in a marriage situation or in a, in a spousal situation or in a relationship situation, you, th- that is really uh, for a long-term relationship, you've got to make some hard choices. There are a lot of surrenders that have to be made. And most of the surrenders are about your ego. Hmm. Am I right? I mean, Oh, totally, totally it, right. I, I, and know, if you've been raised... With the movie version of what a man is, oh, it, it, it's if your skin is crawling, it almost killed me. The John Wayne uh, image of who, um, what a man is, hard drinker, Humphrey Bo. I mean, I was raised on Bogart and Wayne, you know, and that almost got me killed. And it all, it almost got me and a few other people with me killed. 
you know, you're, you're absolutely right. It's the image of what is a man. And a man doesn't let you know. Look, in this day and age, you know, I teach high school, high schoolers today, you know, and, you know, their favorite put down is, hey, bitch. Hey, I mean, is that, that is probably the cruelest, most demeaning thing you can say to a man. And it's almost the surefire way of getting your face hit or getting a reaction. But it's, it's a, it is what, what an incredibly uh, intelligent way to get at somebody. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I'm being facetious here. Yeah. But you know, if you call you call a man a bitch, hey, bitch, and that, and it, I hear it all the time, all day when people are if, at school when guys are angry or they're yelling at people, you know, uh, because it goes to your manhood. Think about that. Yeah, and it's not even so much that you're saying. You're a woman and women are bad. You're saying you have no manhood. That's, you have no manhood. It's, it's the... It's oh, the, absolutely. But you wouldn't want to call a girl a bitch either. Right. You, you know, just calling someone a bitch, period. But to call a man that mm-hmm. is... Yeah, You. I mean, you hit it right in the nose. I mean, that is probably the, one of the most... That's why I brought it up. It is probably the most demeaning thing yeah. uh, you can say to a, a man because we are so... Con- well... People like me, I, I, don't, I won't say all men, but men like me who've been raised with the idea of what a man is, you know, um, it's very ego deflating. Uh, and really, um, like I said, I'm in my 12th year of marriage. How did that happen? You have to make surrenders. You have to compromise. And, and I think to also have compassion for that other person and to let go of the idea that it's your job to mold them and guide them which is something that I lived under the illusion for the longest time that, oh, she just needs to know that this is the right way to do this. This is the way it's going to be. And you don't realize that takes away that person's trust and love. Right. Absolutely. For, for you. Yeah. I'm just now <laughs> <laughs> getting to that, you know, getting sober helped because I was yeah. able to see what my flaws were because I had to, to, to stay sober. And so now I begin to, you know, apply that in my, in my marriage, mm. but it, it takes time because that, that, that hot anger comes up into your face of she's taking my balls away. Thanks. Absolutely. And yeah. uh, that, that can be, that can be really fucking hard. Yeah. And my favorite word when I get into it with somebody on the ice is I don't even go to bitch. I go to cunt. Oh, you fucking cunt. And, uh, uh it just feels good coming out of my mouth. Yeah, it and, feels and, good coming out. And, and and as soon as the word is out, I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. Now, I may not do anything to stop it, but that little voice in my head since I've gotten sober, the little voice that says, you're you're better than this. This isn't who you are. This is your this is your fear speaking. Yeah. What are you afraid of? And that's one thing I think I've learned in having to get sober is when that fear comes up, when that thing that the red flag goes up and I, and I know this is not the right crossing the line thing to be doing is yeah. to say, to go get reflective and say, what am I afraid of? What's, yeah. what did I learn when I did that work on my, on myself? Mm. The things that I'm afraid of are one of those at work here and it 
always is. It's wow. always that I'm not going to get enough. I don't have enough. I'm not enough. I don't matter. You know, really, really. Well, you're deep. lucky if you have if you have enough time to think about that between the time you call that guy a cunt and he either punches you out or hits you with the stick. You know what I'm saying? If you're able to process long enough to go, why did I say that? And what? Boom! Yeah. <laughs> you wake up, you know, looking up at the ceiling. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But uh, my yeah. o- my other favorite one is to beg them to hit me. Please oh hit yeah. Me. Please hit me. Please. Yeah. yeah. No, you're too you too you too big of a pussy to hit me. You know, and the whole time I'm watching myself going, what are you doing? You're a child. What are you doing? What are you hoping to win from this? Yeah. Your manhood. Yeah. Your manhood. Some sense of respect. And it's it's all a, a, oh, So yeah. what how is your idea of I mean, I'm sure clearly we've gotten a sense of this from listening to you to you talk, but what does being a true man involve that you never realized? Um, consistency. You know, I think um, there are so many facets that of my defini- what my definition of a man is. I mean, uh, someone who's not afraid to cry, someone who's not afraid to say I'm wrong, I'm sorry, um, uh, you know, uh, like I told you, you know, what I thought a man was almost got me killed because I was raised, you know, with uh, a negative, I would say a negative in many ways, not always, but in many ways, uh, 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 role models, you know. And, uh, you know, I think getting up and going to work every day, you know, doing your job, providing for your family, um, um, and even... If you don't have a family, just being self-supporting, you know, that is part of what it is to be a man. Or at least trying to be self-supporting. Right. You know, there's a lot of people that are struggling right. to, to be employed, right. but I think as long as they're making the effort right. to, to get employment, you're, right. you're being... Right. That, that's and, and not being afraid, to, like I said at the beginning of this uh, interview, you know, not being afraid to say, I want love. You know, and I want to, and I want to love, you know. Oh man, just saying it, it can, you know, that's crossing a line right there. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's breaking down a barrier, being able to verbalize those feelings. Yeah, because that's you getting know. vulnerable. I have a need right. to be loved. Yeah, saying, it's one thing to say, I want to, I want to love, but it's another thing to say, I want love for a, for a man, for a guy like me, for someone, you know, to say, you know, hey, I want to, I want to be loved. I don't want to die alone. I don't want that. And I don't want that for anybody else either. I don't want them to, to die alone or to feel that they're alone. You know, and if there's any way that I can, um, show that love to, you know, somebody else, not, not, not all the time. I mean, you know, I'm not, you know, but at at chosen moments, you know, when you can express to someone, hey, you're not alone. Hey, man, you know, I love you. Thanks, brother. I love you. I love you, man. <laughs> I really do, uh, really do love Randy. He is, uh, he's somewhere between a, uh, an older brother and a father figure to me and has uh, profoundly, uh, he's one of a half dozen guys who have profoundly um, altered the course of my life uh, for the positive and by their example. Um, as much as as much as their words, so I'm glad I got to share um, his life with uh, with you guys, or at least as much as we could cram into an hour and uh, hour and and a half.
You can uh, support us non-financially by going to iTunes and giving us a good rating, writing something nice. Uh, that boosts our ranking, brings more people to the show. And by spreading the word through social media, we've noticed a little bit of bump through um, from some Reddit traffic, and somebody has created a subreddit page. It's a slash. It's a reddit.com slash r slash mental pod. Um, so please go there and uh, check that out. Start spreading the word. Get off your fucking ass and chip in. That's what I'm saying. Somebody sent me an email at Facebook that said, uh, stop swearing. It's not cool. First of all, you know, it just made me laugh because it's like, do you really think, A, that I'm unaware that I swear and that it might bother some people. And B, do you really think the way that you send that message is going to influence the choice that I'm going to make? Like, I'm going to go, you know what? That person with that prickly, terse sentence really got through to me. I think I'm going to change the way I go about things. So I sent him an email back and said, hey, you know what might be a better idea? It's stop listening. How about that? Instead of trying to control the way I express myself. And I love constructive criticism, but, you know, take a fucking second and put it in a way that shows at least some human decency to the other person. I had this this moment that pissed me off um, listening to somebody's, uh, somebody else's podcast. And there was a guest who I liked very much comedically and had listened to her podcast before. And then she made this comment in her uh interview where she said that she was a feminist and then like literally 15 seconds later she basically said that all men are children and aren't that bright and i just remember thinking fuck you can't you see how hypocritical that is that you as a woman you want equality and then 10 seconds later you put all men down and I, you know I also happened to be going through a, a, a period where I was feeling very boy like because of all the past shit that was coming up with me so I know I was in a really kind of insecure place and I wanted to email her and unload on her and I didn't because I was like you know what this is my shit so those of you that want to tell me to swear less that's your shit so I don't know what to tell you, but stop trying to change the way I express myself. I want to read this. Oh, and the other thing I forgot to mention is um, you can support our advertisers. I know there's no advertisers uh, sometimes for episodes like uh, this week's episode. But um, if you visit their website um, when we advertise them, that greatly uh, influences whether or not they will advertise with us again. And that helps keep the show afloat. So I would love it if you would do that. And I forgot to give the link out for last week's advertiser, which is Onnit, O-N-N-I-T. And so I just wanted to give it um, this week. It's onnit.com slash happy hour. So if you could go there and uh, check it out and maybe even buy some of their stuff, it would be awesome. They have some really, really great um, health products, um, some of which I'm already using and loving. All right. This is an email I got from a um, listener who calls herself Jay. And she writes, Hi, Paul. I'm listening to uh, episode number 118. Uh, Kulap uh, v. is the bomb, and it has made me so desire that feeling of being in your body. I've slowly realized it's not something I have, and I think I'm going to work on that, as well as being present and warding off my anxiety. 
I had a thought, though, about the babysitter survey you read. I feel like recently I've heard you telling people to forgive themselves a lot. I'm listening to your archives out of order, uh, though, so forgive me if the recentness is my imagination. Uh, hearing you, it feels almost triggering to, quote, grant them forgiveness so offhandedly. And none of my sexual shit even happened in childhood. I wish you would just add some nuance there, as in, yes, that was wrong, but you should forgive yourself, or I don't know if it fucked with their sexuality. Maybe it did, but you were a kid, and you should let go of the guilt, maybe not the lesson you learned from it, i.e. respecting other people's privacy or whatever it may have been. It would be great if you could just keep an eye on, uh, to on whether you forgive women more quickly than men. It sounds to me like you might, and I just hope you're not perpetuating the kind of mentality about gender and sexual assault that over your lifetime has contributed to you suffering longer and getting help later than maybe you had to. Thanks for all you do. Um, thank you so much for that. Uh, she, she writes, and stop beating yourself up for stumbling over words. It's endearing, and we like you. And I appreciate you saying that, that Jay. And maybe I do... Um, Maybe I am more forgiving of um, women that that do that. Um, I don't know. I I in my heart I don't feel like uh, I have any more judgment for men or women who who abuse. Um, but who knows? Um, and thank you for putting that in a way that is uh, unlike the person that Facebooked me and was a dick. This is from the shouldn't feel this way survey filled out by. Um, a guy who calls himself disenfranchised, and uh, he's straight, he's in his 30s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? He taught me to see things from diff different perspectives. How does writing that make you feel? Like a failure. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? I would watch my parents in the final arguments before their divorce. I'm supposed to feel grateful about what I have, but I don't feel but I don't. I feel unworthy. I'm supposed to feel like I know what I am doing about fatherhood, but I don't. I feel clueless. I'm su supposed to feel like all I need to do is take things one day at a time, but I don't. I feel like this is impossible. How does it make you feel to write that out? Frighteningly nice. You think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? I'm abnormal in everything I do. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? If that were possible, yes. Well, I say it all the time. And I don't lie when I say it. Um, you are not alone in that. I've read so many people's surveys that, that express that exact sentiment. So I hope that brings you some type of comfort. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Goat Trampoline. And uh, he's bisexual. He's in his 30s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Um, he qualifies alcoholic abusive parents uh, have created a horrible combination of poor attachment and codependence. I struggle in different ways, but they hurt me so much as a child that I resent them and wish my mother would pass away due to how miserable and codependent she is. She is on me after my dad died suddenly within a month after being diagnosed with cancer. Um, sorry to go so dark there, but um, I, I think... I think... Um, now, I'm not going to apologize for the fact that this one um, is is dark or any of the ones. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? No, uh, I've never been sexually abused. Deepest, darkest thoughts? My mind constantly goes in two directions, either thinking too much and going completely, bl um, 
thinking too much or going completely blank. I consistently question my ability to socialize or engage with others. Whenever I see someone talking normally by sharing stories or memories, I envy them for having a great memory to relate and have a real human interaction. I feel more like an automaton that has an off switch whenever people start having fun or relaying details about who they are and what they've done and how the other person responds favorably to their anecdotes. I hate myself about 90% of the time, and the other 10% is spent alone fantasizing about who I would like to be or having a genuine, honest connection. I wish I could tell someone how empty I feel, or the, re- or the reverse, how I- and also how I want to fuck almost every girl that shows me the littlest bit of interest, even if it's just a smile or glance at a grocery store. I feel so dark inside that I can't even enjoy those brief moments of light that emits from the few people I'm close with. I hate my horrible memory and hate my fluctuations and feeling good good enough to get through the day to barely having the strength to get out of bed. Deepest, darkest secrets. I constantly want to fuck my roommate since she's the only other person in my life that I identify with. The only major difference is that she's a social butterfly. She can communicate openly with anyone while I can barely say a word to strangers or those I am close to. I admire everything about her, whether it be her beautiful smile or her beaming charismatic personality. But she's not interested in me sexually or romantically. It could be because I remind her at times of her and she hates herself. It could be because her past boyfriends are far more attractive with great hair and muscular bodies. I've tried to kill myself a few times and sometimes still struggle with ideation. She does too and I would give anything to find affordable treatment for us to get help together. It's confusing for me to feel lust, disgust, and adoration sometimes within minutes back-to-back while being around her. People constantly question why we are so close, and I tell them we are the best f- that we are the best friends without even hinting that I want something more constantly. But since she only wants me as a friend, I have no choice but to jerk off to her and then feel immediately guilty since I respect her deeply and don't want her to ever think that I sexualize her. I even have come close to having panic attacks whenever we get cuddly on the couch because the feeling I get around her overwhelms me since I would say anything, I would give anything to marry her. And yet I know it will never happen since I couldn't be further from being her type. It also saddens me to know that one day we will no longer be roommates but long distance friends. I wonder if other listeners have ever had a roommate of the opposite sex and how they coped with intense attraction. Well, I'm hoping that I get some emails from listeners who who have. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to read this. And the other was to um, urge you to to go to talk to somebody about this. You know, it 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 bears some of the qualities of you know love addiction and enmeshment. And I think what a lot of people mistake for um, healthy love which really you know healthy love comes from you know an abundance of self-love and having something to give to somebody else and unhealthy love comes from a, trying to fill a hole inside of, of ourselves um, trying to fill a neediness by making that other person our you know putting them up on a pedestal and um, it sounds to me like that's kind of what's going on with you guys and it might be good to, I don't know, to, to maybe move out or take a break from her because it sounds like it's really driving you, it's driving you crazy. And um, I think everybody can relate to having somebody, though, that 
you know, that you just can't stop thinking about. And it literally hurts your body to know that you're never going to be with them. So know that you're not alone. You're not alone in that. Um, and I, I, I hope we get, uh, oh, I want to read, um, do your, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, um, shame, guilt, and regret, and a strange comfort that I feel strongly about someone. Love feels good, but lust feels bad, so it's a constant war in my head that doesn't stop, and I can't separate from her either, since it would send me into a horrible depression from not seeing her face every day. She's my first thought in the morning, and my very last at night, and sometimes I rationalize my desire, because wanting to fuck comes from a place of love rather than, obje- than obje- objectification, yet it affects my ability to be around her as much as we get along. We're supposed to relocate together, and this fills me with dread and excitement. I constantly feel conflicted about what to do that I am pleading uh, from the listeners or yourself for input and advice. And I think I just gave you my my two cents, so uh, I'd be interested to know what some of the listeners think, especially some of the mental health professionals that that listen to this show. this is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Janice. Uh, he's male. He's uh, bisexual. He's in his 20s. Was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Um, uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, he writes, I've never been, quote, sec- successfully se- sexually abused. When I was homeless as a kid, a few people tried to rape me and some child pornographers tried to kidnap me. One worked for Child Protective Services and showed up to my school uh, after that. That's a fucking frightening idea that a pedophile is working for Child Protective Services. But, you know, I suppose when somebody wants to fill their their dark, you know, whatever, their dark desires, and it's uncontrollable, I guess that would... Uh, that would be an ideal place, you know, that and working at a preschool. Um, one worker for CPS showed up to my school after the first time and tried to pull me out of class with a BS excuse that neighbors saw me being raped by my folks. Uh, deepest, darkest thoughts. Uh, is it bad that I don't really think about things that I wouldn't act on? Uh, I'm extremely impulsive by nature, not an addict. I've acted on a lot of really bad things. Deepest, darkest secrets. I'm not sure I'm comfortable sharing things I've done for legal reasons. By the way, that's that's why I made this survey um, completely anonymous. Uh, and I've even um, uh, taken the option on the survey collector that the person's IP address is not recorded. So I wouldn't have any way, um, you know, if, if somebody was to say I'm currently engaged in something horrible, um, I wouldn't have a way to find out who that, that person was. Um, I suppose I could go to the, the NSA or you know something like that, but I don't think uh, <laughs> one of my surveys would rank up there in terms of uh, them devoting man hours to, to looking for something. Um, and I, I don't think I would ever even go down that path because I, I want to keep this this pipeline open of people being able to let all of this stuff out, all the demons out of their their minds and their and their souls. Um, 
So he writes, I'm not comfortable sharing some of the things I've done for legal reasons. Some pretty bad stuff has happened to me. Multiple people have tried to murder me. I've been tied up and tortured. I've seen a lot of the worst sides of gang violence firsthand, firsthand and been part of them, one side or the other. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize about being smothered to death while making love, either during cunnilingus or being ridden. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? I tell some of my partners the fact that I like those kinds of things, but they don't know that I'd like to actually die that way. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Confusion. I'm not sure why I want to die. A lot of stuff that goes on in my head and my actions in general confuse me. I rarely feel in control. Well, my God, uh, you know, I got to tell you, reading about some of the stuff that you've been through, even though, you know, some of the attempts that these people made were, you know, quote unquote, unsuccessful. The terror that you must have felt as a kid um, and as, as an adolescent with the gang violence, I mean, how can that not leave marks on, on you and how you feel about the world around you? This is from the Happy Moment survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Matt. He writes, I was at the local cinema with a girl I was dating at the time. When I started going out with her, I wasn't really into movies, but she was quite a real movie buff. So quite a few of our dates had been watching movies together, though obviously with quite a few more picks from her than me. The particular hap happy moment, though, was during the adverts before the movie, in the dark, and we were talking quietly. I don't remember how it came about, but she talked about places she felt happy and safe, like in her old room and her family home. And then at the end, she added in a shy voice that one of the places was watching movies with me. I just remember being so happy right then that I could make her feel like that and that she'd been nervous about it, but had shared it with me anyway. I felt like I was doing something right, right at that moment. Thank you for that, Matt. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself DW. She is uh, bisexual in her 20s raised in a stable and safe environment, never been sexually abused. Um, although she writes, guy from the bushes took me by the arm and tried to get me to jerk him off. Fucked up, but I'm grateful that's the worst that's happened. Um, deepest, darkest thoughts. I imagine what my Facebook status would be if my friends or cousins died. I fear that I will one day realize I'm a pedophile, even though I don't think I actually am. But I used to think I was straight, too. I want to know what heroin feels like. I think about losing weight a lot. I'm tempted to steal weed from my parents even though I'm a huge bitch to them when they smoke. I think I had a crush on my uncle when I was younger. Deepest, darkest secrets. I have a secret pack of cigarettes. I have peed in my clothes and jerked off about it. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Having sex with a woman in a place where we weren't supposed to be doing so, like in a church or at a business meeting. Well, you should watch uh, Orange is, is the New Black. Um, that, by the way, if you're not watching, it's a Netflix original. It's so fucking good. It is, and I added a fuck there just for that person that doesn't like me swearing. Um, highly recommended. It's a really great series. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner, close friend, she writes, I would, because they aren't very embarrassing. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? She writes, sometimes I wonder why I always have to be so secretive, why I paint myself into these corners. I don't know, there's something nice about um, having a secret if it's, if it's not something shameful. Um, 
A lot of times I think about the things that only my wife and I know, which I don't know if that technically qualifies as a secret, but like this life that we have with our dogs and these stories that we make up about what they think and what they do when we're out of the house. And uh, I just sometimes I stop and I think nobody else in the world really knows about that, that inner life that that we have and that we share. And uh, I don't know, I think that's kind of that's kind of cool. Um, this is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey filled out by um, a guy who calls himself Quimby. He is male. Uh, he's uh, gay. He's in his 20s. And by the way, a Quimby, I think, is the guy when three guys are fucking. I think the Quimby, if I'm not mistaken, is the guy in the middle. Um, so he's the guy fucking and being being fucked. Um, I'm really pissing off that person that, that face, sent me that Facebook message. Um, but that wasn't intentional. Um, and I think it's also called a lucky Pierre, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? That they couldn't imagine life without me, that I was brilliant, someone with endless insight, and that they wish they could have been closer to me. How does that make you feel writing that? Like an insecure narcissist. Dude, we, I think we all fantasize about that or maybe i should just say myself i i definitely have grandiose fantasies about what people will say um if you had a time machine how would you use it i'd go back and look at myself at four or five to see if there was potential for someone normal and well adjusted or if i was already living a life as if all that mattered was in my head uh, i'm supposed to feel ambitious about my future but i don't i feel like if i didn't carry such a deep sense of shame there'd be nothing I'd like to do more than live a passive life where I just surf the internet and smoke pot and spend too much of other people's money on my selfish needs. How does writing that make you feel? Guilty, childish, and pathetic. Do you think you're abnormal? Yes, I feel like I'm being choked by this leash of guilt that only just barely stops me from wallowing in useless selfishness 24-7. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better? Yes, I'm dying for someone to tell me that they've been through feeling like this and they were just looking at it wrong. And there came a point where their intellectual curiosity brought them face to face with the self-sustainable way of life, but I don't think that person exists, so I'll settle for knowing someone else who struggles with the same feelings. Well, you know, I think it is true, <coughs> excuse me, that that um, because I have gotten to the point where I was stuck in my head and just felt empty and wanted to die, but I didn't get to a place where things changed intellectually. I got through it by asking for help and opening up and expressing myself emotionally and getting vulnerable. And I think most people who have gotten any kind of recovery would also say that that was the turning point for them. And I think that feeling like something's going to change intellectually and that's going to be the thing that breaks it open is one of the biggest myths that kind of keeps us stuck. I want to read a um, an email update from a listener that uh, you may remember named Pam who was going back and forth on whether or not to go to uh, therapy and um, she shared about the intake process and how much better it went than she thought it would and so she's giving us an update and um, she writes uh, I had had my intake interview as I told you before but it had been two and a half weeks and I hadn't heard from the mental health clinic I had just decided to forget the whole thing and just live my life as best as I could when I turned on your podcast and listened to you read my emails seriously 
The timing could not have been better. I called the clinic right after the podcast ended and made an appointment. It was another little step that I am so glad I have taken. I adore my therapist. She gives me time to figure things out and also calls me on my shit. I have told her everything. The good, the scary, the icky. She has assured me that I am not broken or even bent. I am an individual who has gone through a bunch of trauma, uh, trauma, a bunch of trauma, brother verbally and physically abusing me for my whole life, uncle sexually molesting and raping me, and a father who is emotionally absent and often abusive, and an alcoholic. It's a trifecta. I've been going to therapy once a week for the last two months, as well as taking Zoloft and meditating. It has been the hardest thing I have ever done, but so worth every moment of pain. I am warming to the idea that I am worth taking care of and loving. I have embraced the idea that being sexually molested was not my fault and that I am a powerful woman that can take care of myself. I no longer need to fear all men. I can kick some ass if needed. Best of all, I am moving in a direction that I like. I feel a little less crazy every day. I feel like living, like I want to keep living for more than just a week or a month. I still have crappy days and I still have nightmares and flashbacks, but I believe that things will get better as long as I keep asking for help and keep being open to receiving the help and keep working. I haven't joined a support group yet, but I'm warming to the idea. It seems like the more I talk about my fears, the less scary they are because so many people have the same fears. Oh, I just love, I just loved getting that email. Thanks for the update, Pam. And, um, I'm, I hope that anybody out there um, who's thinking about um, getting into therapy, going back to therapy, joining a support group, I, I hope you, I hope you do it without having me to read your email um, on the air. Um, but it's weird that sometimes people need to hear somebody validating their thing to get some kind of momentum rolling about their issue i and i know that was the case for me i had to hear somebody comment on my trauma um when i had shared and uh hearing it come out of their mouth gave me a different perspective on it I, it was the door opening to me having compassion for myself so i get it um Finally, I want to read a happy moment from a woman or, or a male who uh, calls himself uh, Rat Fink. And his happy moments, he writes, One night on a trip when my son was still a toddler and he still rode in his car seat and back, I started snacking on peanuts. I knew how much he loved peanuts, but I couldn't really take my eyes off the road. So I blindly reached around behind me with some peanuts cupped in my hand. After a few seconds, I felt a tickle as his tiny soft fingers carefully took one peanut at a time. Neither of us spoke. The feeling was even more amazing than feeding wild chickadees from my hand. So many emotions came to me. I felt his trust, his sweet playfulness, and a gratitude that needed no words. It was impossible not to smile or giggle. After that night, any time we traveled together, I'd feed the bird like I did that night, and he played right along. He's a teenager now, and I'll bet he'd still take the peanuts, but all at once. Well, there you have it, uh, our best of episode with Randy Olea. I hope you uh, you got something out of it. I hope you were compelled, entertained, moved. Uh, at the very least, I hope it loosened up your bowels. I mean, that's why I started this podcast. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening.
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.